And I've seen many of those restored, fully, mm-hmm. completely restored, particularly in marriage when there's been adultery. I, I'm amazed how many, about half of those cases we've worked on were fully restored. But the one relationship that is rarely restored is when a, when a pastor gets seriously sideways with his leadership. What is the most common type of conflict that you see uh, in church? Oh, wow. Probably at a low level, it goes on all the time below the scenes. It's just gossip, gossip mm. and criticism and backbiting. Uh, if you could eliminate gossip and slander and backbiting, um, you, you'd eliminate a huge portion of the uh, conflict that goes on. It's sort of underground. Well, the gospel is, it's the, it's the motive for reconciliation, it's the model for reconciliation, mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. the method for reconciliation. I mean, the gospel represents everything that's essential. Hey, everybody, I want to welcome you again to the Before You Quit podcast, where we want to bring courage and perspective when serving gets hard, and man, does it get hard sometimes. My name is Mitch Schultz. And I am your host, and I'm also the director of ministry called Fruitful Vine Ministry. And uh, that is a ministry that uh, helps to encourage and come alongside and bring support to people in ministry who are struggling. And this podcast, Before You Quit, is an arm of that ministry. Uh, Today we're going to be talking about what to do when there is conflict in your church, uh, or even in your marriage or in any relationship that you re- you realize that you're at the point where help is needed from the outside. I've talked about conflict before in a number of podcasts, but this is really going to uh, hone in more on the, the discipline or the skill of peacemaking. Um, and uh, I know this is extremely important. I pastored a church once. In fact, it was the longest uh, ministry that I I had in one church, and it was a church that was in trouble. It was plagued by conflict from the day that I got there. And over and over again, we would ask ourselves, what do we do with this? And at times, the elders would meet with people and try to reason with them, and it seemed like things got harder and and more difficult. Uh, There were times where we admonished those that we felt were making ways in the church, and uh, we never got far in the whole biblical process of of seeking repentance and restoration, because these people would, uh, as is often the case, they would end up leaving. Um, too often, sadly, um, I admit here that we let things go. We did not deal with things. We were maybe nervous to approach a situation out of fear. Um, you know, the repercussions maybe were not worth it, and that's that's sad. I admit that. In fact, I remember dealing with one situation where a group of people. Uh, between eight to ten of them were very upset with the leadership of the church, and uh, they decided to stop attending and stop giving, and it severely hurt the church. And because of it, we had to lay off in a in a matter of a year. Several staff members um, were laid off because we did not have the finances. It was directly related to people holding back their giving because of their discontent. And uh, here's here's the issue that we dealt with because this got uh, pretty sticky. Um, those unsettled people, or uh, as one person refers to uh, people like this as malpots, that is actually a word, um, were no longer attending our worship services, and they were no longer giving, but they attended a popular Sunday school class um, taught by a particular teacher. Um, but they did not attend church at all, and the, the elders would uh, sit with me and try to figure out what do we do with this, and uh, we were a little nervous confronting the teacher, 
uh, for har- harboring these discontents in sort of a uh, sanctuary city kind of way. And uh, we were afraid that if we confronted him that we would experience more loss numerically and even financially. Uh, so we needed help, but we never really knew where to turn to. And uh, I wish that um, I knew what I know now. I wish I was motivated by these principles and these values that I am now back in that time. And uh, so today we're, we're going to have a, a rather direct and uh, kind of a hard conversation, hard in the sense that we're tackling these issues head on with someone who is well known with conflict and someone who uh, is well known for bringing about peace where there has been conflict. Uh, the Lord has used him in a tremendous way. And uh, many of you have no doubt heard of the peacemaking ministry led by Ken Sand. Uh, perhaps you've read his popular book uh, on peacemaking called The Peacemaker. Well, it's my privilege today to talk with Ken directly about peacemaking uh, where there is conflict. And we're actually going to be doing two interviews. Um, this was his suggestion. In fact, he gave me a great compliment. He said, Mitch, you did a great job. Let's do this again. I said, thank you. Let's do that. So we're going to be looking mainly today at uh, at peacemaking, which was his old ministry. And then next time, in two weeks, we're going to be looking at, a, at what he's doing now in a ministry called Relational Wisdom 360, which is really all about preventing conflict. Uh, so they, today we're going to talk about how to deal with conflict Next time, how to prevent conflict. Uh, Ken Sand is, is the founder of Peacemaker Ministries and, as I said, president now of Relational Wisdom 360. He has a training in mechanical engineer and lawyer, exactly what you need as experience to be in peacemaking. He's actually going to talk about that. He's passionate about bringing life-changing power of the gospel into the lives of Christians and their churches. In fact, he uses biblical peacemaking principles uh, to minister to parties in hundreds of conflicts ranging from personal, uh, simple personal disputes to complex legal uh, conflicts. He's the author of The Peacemaker, which has been translated in 15 languages. He's written numerous books, articles, training resources on biblical conflict resolution and relational wisdom. I'll have his website so you can look at those resources. He's also a certified Christian concilia- conciliator. Uh, editorial advisor for Christianity Today International uh, Church Management Team, certified emotional intelligence instructor, and he and his wife, Corlette, are delighted to be grandparents and love to hike with their family in the mountains near their home in Montana. So it is uh, just a thrill to uh, take you into this conversation that I had with Ken Sand. Uh, It'll be motivating. It'll be challenging. It'll be encouraging. Let's jump in right now. Okay, I'm excited to have Ken Sand on the other end of the uh, Zoom conferencing here. Ken, thank you so much for being willing to do this. It means a lot to me in your busy schedule that you take time to meet with someone uh, in the small world of podcasting that, uh, that I'm in. Well, very happy to be here, Mitch. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. Hey, let me let me start with this question. If you uh, this this happens to all of us, we're in an airplane, and uh, it, someone might ask us what we do, and we know that we might have just a few seconds really to explain. How how would you sum up in just a statement what you do? <laughs> well, I'm a uh, a professional conciliator and trainer in relationships. 
that's very concise. I should have probably added, and in five seconds, you know you're going to crash, and you, you're urgently needing to explain. <laughs> well, that was very concise. Very good. Well, you're, you're the founder of Peacemaker Ministry, which is a ministry that uh, I know a lot of people are familiar with. Uh, you know, many in the circles that I've run in the last 30 years of pastoring have used your material, and uh, even in one case, there there was someone trained in your ministry that came and worked in the church that I was I was in that was having some conflict. You're also now in a in a ministry called Relational Wisdom 360. Um, how do you distinguish between those two? Well, peacemaking was focused almost exclusively on resolving conflict, reacting to conflict. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And for 30 years, I, I just, it was thrilling to be part of that, to see God work in situations that seemed really impossibly beyond reconciliation. Mm -hmm. We just saw amazing things. But we didn't always see reconciliation. In many cases, people just hardened their hearts and the church split mm -hmm. or Mary's divorced or whatever. And so about six years ago, I thought, you know, I'd, I'd rather at this stage in life focus more of my attention on preventing conflict, getting upstream of conflict, if you will, to help people develop relational skills that keep them from getting into that crisis situation. Excellent. Mm. So RW still incorporates all of the peacemaking content that I developed uh, that's in the Peacemaker book, for example. But instead of that being the whole pie, that's just a slice of the pie. Most of our training now is how do we develop relationships and relational skills that just go for strong relationships, compassion, empathy, understanding, good communication, building up what we call social capital, that when problems do hit you, you've got a reserve of relationship mm. there to go on. So it's, I, I'd much rather prevent a fire than put a fire out. Well, yeah, certainly. And you're not, you're not dealing with a crisis, which is certainly not as exhausting and discouraging, as you mentioned, you know, the results were not always good. I, I can resonate with that. I do, I do a lot of marriage counseling, and it's very discouraging. In fact, when, when a marriage is in crisis, a lot of times I feel like I'm there just to kind of let it end well, you know, almost like a hospice chaplain, you know, to see the, the dying process to be as, as comfortable as possible. Um, but more recently, I've done a lot of pre-marriage counseling, and in that sense, it's, it's you know, a lot of preventive uh, elements to that, that you're, you're letting couples know that these are the challenges you'll face. And um, so I think that's kind of similar to what you're saying. You have the privilege now to, uh, to educate people before they ever, they will experience conflict, won't they? But you want them to know how to, how to handle it, how the gospel speaks to it. Mm -hmm. um, what, what is peacemaking? How would you, how would you define that, that, that methodology, that approach? Well, peacemaking, of course, is, is a theme throughout the Bible, all the way from Genesis through Revelation. God is a God of relationship. In, in a fallen world, relationships are often damaged, and peacemaking is how we repair and restore relationships. Mm -hmm. um, we've developed a basically a practical theology of peacemaking. We call it the four Gs, uh, four basic concepts, glorifying God, being more concerned about how our actions reflect on Him than mm -hmm. what about us. How do we please and honor God, basically? Secondly is get the log out of your own eye, is take responsibility for your contribution to a conflict first. That's mm -hmm. not our human focus. Our human focus is to point the finger at others. Third G is to gently restore. How do I go to a brother or sister when there's a conflict and I see that they may have done something to contribute? And how can I communicate with them in a winsome way that actually can get through all the barriers and help them see their contribution? And then fourth, go and be reconciled. How do we actually mm -hmm. achieve genuine reconciliation, genuine forgiveness, and also work out the 
the substantive issues uh, through negotiation, whatever they might be, in a way that both sides say, this is a good solution, and I, 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 I support it, I'm behind it, I own it, and we are fully restored. You know, as you're saying that, I, I recall the, the one time that I was involved in a mediation situation with, uh, uh, I won't get into details, just some other families that were disgruntled, and we were in a crosshairs of this, and uh, a man that had been trained with your ministry came and met with us, and he had cue cards that he pulled out, and they had each of those uh, G uh, letters there. But very, it, what, what impressed me with it is it took the focus away from ourselves and what we wanted and really put, put the focus on what God wanted. And if you're driven in conflict to do what God wants, it becomes a matter of obedience, doesn't it? Uh, it you know. yeah, but it, it is so counterintuitive. I, no, I, sure. I was impressed years ago when I read a, a prayer by Augustine, and this was late in his life. So this is a mature patriarch mm-hmm. of the church. And one of his continuing prayers was, Lord, deliver me from this lust of always vindicating myself. Wow. And, and that, that is our, our natural, you know, to this day, I, I've been doing this for 36 years. And still, if my wife comes and confronts me about something, my first reflex internal reaction is, well, now hold on a minute and to, to vindicate. And so we, we'll struggle with this till the day we die, hopefully having greater and greater victory. But that, that shift of focus to glorifying God, to be more concerned, you know, Lord, what will please and honor you? That is the fundamental mm-hmm. thing in biblical peacemaking. Yeah, so again, the four are uh, glorify God, get the log out of your own eye. The third gently, one? Gently restore. Gently restore. Go and be reconciled. Go and be reconciled. Excellent. What got you into this, Ken? Did, did this, were, you, were you drawn into this out of a personal experience? What, what drew you into this? Well, there's actually a blog on our website where I describe describe it. But it, it basically, uh, I was in. I, I'd been an engineer in medical R and D for a long time and enjoyed that immensely. But I just missed Montana and wanted to get back here. There weren't a lot of engineering jobs, so I decided to go to law school. My dad had been a judge. My brother was a lawyer, so I went to law school. But shortly before graduation, I just realized I really didn't feel like I wanted to practice law in the traditional sense. Mm-hmm. And part of that was. <laughs> I've been clerking the whole time in law school as a professional engineer, expert witness. And I just realized being around the adversarial system, it brought out my worst tendencies. I, I am competitive by nature. And once I get something, you know, in my mind, I go for it. I thought this is going to be, this is going to bring out all my worst tendencies. Uh, and that's not to speak badly against other attorneys. Many of them work in that arena very effectively, but I knew I wouldn't. And the Lord, in just a very providential way, brought to my mind, a, or brought to my attention, this ministry called Christian Conciliation, which was being originated by the Christian Legal Society. The minute I heard about it, my heart leaped. I thought, mm. that's it. So I clerked for a federal judge for a year and then launched the Christian Conciliation Service of Montana. Mm. And, um, and actually, one other side point there is that the real change came when I heard a sermon in Philippians 1 about uh, where Paul said, you know, he's in chains for Christ. And the pastor preaching said, you know, when you're in chains, when you're in a situation that you really would prefer not to be in, and that's how I was feeling toward my water point, he said, you only have two choices. You can either consecrate your chains or you can curse your chains. Mm, mm. And I I just went up after church, got down on my knees and said, Lord, I'm consecrating my law degree to you. It's Mm. your law degree. you, You show me how to use it and it's yours. It was a huge change in my own heart and mind. 
three hours later, I got this call from a guy associated with Christian Conciliation. I'd never heard of him before. Mm. But three hours after I consecrated my law degree to God, God brought me this ministry. So you're actually direct involved in, in a situation right away. Yeah, that's right. That's how, right. how did that go? Well, I mean, no, I, the, the consecration was of my law degree. I just said, I, I'm going to, mm. whatever you want me to do with my career as a lawyer, yeah. I'm going to use it for you. So I, yeah. I wasn't involved in the conciliation case right away. But okay, it, gotcha. Yeah. You just joined the, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can, I, it's interesting, engineering, law, and into this, you were well equipped. <laughs> well, it, it yeah. is interesting. Some people do chuckle about it, but yeah. the, the engineering, I actually would say, was my best equipping because what I learned as an engineer was a very simple process. You take a problem. You divide it into component pieces. You ap apply the proper laws to each component mm -hmm. and you never violate the laws. And so when we get a conciliation case, you can have two people that come to us usually with a presenting issue that's defined as a legal or financial conflict. Mm -hmm. But there's also personal, there is spiritual, there's all sorts of other things that are involved there. And, it's, and those are the real things driving conflict. It's usually not violation of the statute. It's that a former business partner you think did you wrong and how could an old friend do this and I'm not going to let him get away with yeah. it. Yeah, well, it probably it forced you to get past the emotions and, and lay on the table what actually existed and that's probably where the engineering that's right. came in. You're putting things into categories and discerning. Let me just pause for just a, a brief um, couple seconds here and encourage you to write down on a piece of paper somewhere two names of people that... Uh, you would forward this podcast to. Um, I'm just motivated to try to look for creative ways to uh, promote this more. And uh, I know sometimes I listen to things and I love them, but I don't take the time to tell others about it or to share it on Facebook or to email someone about it. So um, I'm asking you personally right now if you could just uh, take a moment, pause, get a piece of paper, write down two names. and uh, Or you could just pause right now and and uh, share this link with someone and uh, that would be a real encouragement to, to me it'd be another way to to uh, pass on this uh, I think very important message that uh, we have on on conflict today but also for all the different themes that we have in the before you quit podcast thanks so much for doing that let's get back to the interview now Uh, hey, you, I, I read an article you wrote uh, I think you you sent this to me when we first connected a few weeks ago um, I, I think it was entitled Relationship Rarely Restored, or that was the theme in there. And you, you stayed in there, and this, this was intriguing to me, and I, I do agree with you, that the pastor-elder relationship, uh, when, when there's been conflict in that, in that relationship between the pastor and the elder, is one of the hardest to heal. Uh, why is that, and what, what have you seen, and can that change? Yeah, I, it is interesting. I have seen cases of infidelity. And, I mean, I, terrible, you know, uh, embezzlement. Also. <laughs> the worst possible things, huh? Yeah, and I've seen many of those restored, fully, mm. completely restored, particularly in marriage when there's been adultery. I, I'm amazed how many, about half of those cases we've worked on were fully restored. But the one relationship that is rarely restored is when a, when a pastor gets seriously sideways with his leadership team. Mm. And I don't have a definite answer for that. Mitch, I, I, I think, um, you know, in many of those cases, the best we achieve is where both sides will calm down, reflect on how they've contributed, make some honest confession of their own sins, forgive each other. But usually, the vast majority of time, they, they agree at that point that the best thing to do is to allow the pastor to depart in peace. Yeah, to move on. Yeah, yeah. 
there's a few cases where they try to keep working. And there, there's a few where it did work out, but most of those even within a year or so, they're just saying it just, it just isn't working. Yeah. My, my theory on this, and I don't have a definitive study, it'd be an interesting master's degree for somebody actually, but I think there's two things going on. I, I think we tend to put our pastors up on a pedestal mm-hmm. and we, we think that, you know, this is the man who's, you know, one step closer to God than me. He's the one that knows God's word, is living the word, everything else. And once that pastor falls off that pedestal in the eyes of his elders, I, I think that loss of respect and confidence, it, it's hard for the elders and even the congregation in, in ways to, to, again, respect in the way they used to. Now, I would submit, I think they had a false basis for their relationship in the first place. Yes. But yes. any pastor up on a pedestal um, is, is just unwise. But I think there's another side to it. I think the pastor himself thinks of himself as being mm-hmm. up on a pedestal. You know, I, I, I command the respect. People think that I'm reliable and trustworthy and godly. And once he falls in a significant way and he is a mere human, I, it, it's a little bit like the Wizard of Oz when he comes out mm-hmm. from behind that screen, you find he's a mere man. Yeah. I, I think a lot of pastors just, they, they don't know what to do if they're looked at as just people. Just yeah. people. And they, they want to go on and they will typically go on to another church where they them they set themselves up on a pedestal again. I'm yeah. I'm yeah. Repeat repeat those patterns. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we need to be realistic. And when we come in, you know, the pastor in our present church, he, he's one of the best preachers I've ever sat under my entire life, and yet he is so approachable. He is so mm. down to earth. He's mm. so transparent about his own human frailties, and not in a way that's obsessive or or inappropriate, but you can relate to him. He's standing on the same level of, of ground that you are right before the cross. Yeah, and I think that that can be nurtured early on in the, you know, discerning the the, the connection or the chemistry that's there. I, you know, with my ministry, when I'm helping pastors in transition, uh, I'll talk to them about looking for relational dynamics. You know, how, how do you feel you're going to get along with these guys? And, and what, are, what, are their, what are their expectations of you, expectations of you, not just as a pastor, but also as a brother in Christ? Right. And uh, I, I think probably one of the reasons this happens, that the reason why this relationship is so hard to heal when it's broken, it's, it's based so much just around the ministry that there aren't real, there isn't a level of of um, communion between men and and a, a deep this I mean I was it was huge to me when I was pastoring to really connect with guys to become friends with them yeah. and in a number of cases I thought I was but then when I left I found out they they viewed me just as the pastor I longed for a friendship yeah. and, uh, so I, I think maybe you know the question what what needs to change or how can that change particularly, you know, you're probably dealing with these sort of things when you talk about the preventing is, uh, is to talk about the nature of the relationships early on between the pastor and, and the elders. What, what do you think about that? Very, very true. And I, I think one of the things that's frightening, I would, I would say that 99 out of 100 pastors, and I, I'm not exaggerating with that number, do not feel comfortable being transparent. They mm-hmm. don't feel mm-hmm. being transparent. That's why if a pastor, for example, is struggling in his marriage or has been stumbled with some pornography, the last people he will go to is talk to. Is his elders, yeah. Because he's afraid, boy, if they find out I'm not squeaky clean perfect, I'm out of here. Yeah. And 
And it's, uh, that's why when I go to conferences and speak, I end up almost inevitably as the pastor confessor where a lot of pastors mm-hmm. come to me and share something. And I'll always say, if you share this with your elders, you go, oh, no, I wouldn't dare. Are you kidding? Yeah, I won't be there the next week. So to have that friendship, another thing, one of the blogs on our website that is very popular is just called Approachability, the Key to Effective Ministry and Leadership. It's the idea that, you know, pastors, instead of being up on top of this pedestal, how can they actually be approachable to their elders, to people in the congregation where people feel comfortable coming to them, asking questions, sharing concerns, even offering constructive criticism mm-hmm. to, to have what we call a low authority slope. It's where people can get up to the pastor very easily, very safely and talk about those things. That's another very important thing. Mm-hmm. Very good. Yeah, thanks for that. That's um uh, that's a challenge, and I, I think hopefully uh, people, as they hear this, could uh, you know it, it could cause them to think more more carefully how they can nurture that. If an elder is listening to this, you know maybe it opens their eyes to the need to uh, to be closer to the pastor. Uh, shifting gears a little bit, you know we talk about conflict, and obviously in in the whole dynamic of of dealing with conflict, you're going to be uh, talking about confronting of sin. Uh, my experience has been that the, and the, for the lack of a better way of putting it, the, the circle of confession oftentimes, particularly in our culture, is just never completed, you know, where people are, are confronted, they repent, they confess, there's an opportunity to extend forgiveness. It seems like people run, and there's never that opportunity to see the full gospel, you know, the gospel take full effect. I served in, in England for seven years as a pastor in a small evangelical church where we were really the only evangelical church to 50, 80,000 people. So when there was conflict in the church, there was nowhere else to go. <laughs> so, so people had to deal with it. You know, they, they were forced to, to reconcile. And if they didn't, they left community. Um, so why, why is that? Why, and what can be done? And, and what is the flaw in our approach maybe that, that uh, brings about this sort of short coming? You know, I, th- I think it's human pride. I mean, you look at Genesis 3, what's the response Adam and Eve have immediately? It's concealment, mm-hmm. it's blaming, it's running away. I mean, we, we've inherited this from our, our parents, basically. Um, I think one of the most important things a pastor can do on this thing, Mitch, is to set an example that he can show and demonstrate that it is safe and it is good. Mm-hmm. Confess sin, to forgive, etc., I'll just give you an example. Uh, a pastor at my former church, um, he had never before had a church large enough with a full-time uh, church secretary. And so when he came to our church, had a full-time secretary, he wasn't experienced in how to manage. And he just, without even meaning to it, just, just accidentally, he was just doing some things that just really sort of stepped on her toes, made her feel uncomfortable, uh, a variety of things going on. And she finally went to one of the elders' wives and just said that she just felt very stressed out in their relationship and she was going to resign. Mm. Her elder's wife wisely said, well, you you can't do that. If you don't go and talk to him, we'll hire someone else and she'll have the same experience. She owed to him to give him that feedback. And she said, well, I I I wouldn't dare go and talk to him on my own. And the elder's wife said, well, I'll go with you. So the two of them made an appointment, went in and talked to the, the pastor. And to his credit, he received it really, really well. God just gave him a lot of grace to receive this criticism. He responded in such a humble and gracious way, sincerely asked her confession, drew her out, found out more specifically some of the things he was doing. 
and made a very concerted effort to really change those management um, dynamics and was so successful. They went on to work together for another eight, eight or 10 years before she actually left town when her husband was transferred. So mm-hmm. they had a very successful relationship, a, a complete restoration actually. But the really neat thing in that story was the following Sunday when he was in the pulpit, with her permission, he shared the story wow, of what had happened. That's powerful. He described exactly what had happened. He was thankful for the elder's wife to encourage her to come and talk with him, that they came in together, that he learned something through this, he grew through it. But then the really great thing was, he said, and I, I want to share one other thing. I have probably affected some of the rest of you in the same way. Mm. I can really be clueless in how I, how I impact people, and I'm sure that by now I've offended others. And I ask you, please forgive me. Please come and talk to me and and let's clear the air. I need this feedback. I want to grow. This is part of the body of Christ of us loving one another, iron sharpening other. You know, from a human perspective, we think if if a pastor admits something like that in the eyes of his congregation, they'll think less of him. Just the opposite is true. His his status, his passport in that congregation went up three notches that morning. Mm. Okay. We can relate to this man. He's humble. He's teachable. And, and it just was a huge, significant thing. And I thought it was interesting where the next several years, the Lord sovereignly arranged like once a year for him to do something that required a public confession. And every, time, <laughs> every time he did it, every time he did it, people just respected him more. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask, does a pastor, you know, just look for something and... Of course, he's got plenty to choose from, doesn't he? We're all sinful. That's right. That's right. And it even doesn't yeah. have to be something about the congregation, even weaving into a story. You're, yeah, you're yeah. trying to make a point about, you know, humbling yourself. And you might say, for example, this weekend, my wife and I got into a, a disagreement over this, and I got defensive, et cetera, et cetera. It, it, just for people to hear, okay, he's, he's a real human being, and he's showing us how to do this. Yeah, by yeah. yeah. yeah that's wonderful. That modeling is is so important. Um, I'm going to come back to a question, remind me if I don't bring it up, about the golden result, which is something that you write about. But I, I want to first, uh, just so we can maybe talk about specifics here, what, what is the most common type of conflict that you see uh, in church? Oh, wow. Probably at a low level, it goes on all the time below the scenes, it's just gossip, mm. gossip and criticism and backbiting. Uh, if you could eliminate gossip and slander and backbiting, um, you, you'd eliminate a huge portion of the uh, conflict that goes on. It's sort of underground. Type yeah. Maybe one way to do that is eliminate the prayer meeting, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, we often disguise our gossip in, in prayer. Yeah. Uh, so on, on a low level, what about other more, more you know, th- the kind of things that have burdened you that you see? I, I would say that the, if you were to ask the, the pastor what's the most common conflict that comes to him, it's going to be serious marital conflict, mm. and which, is, which is so ironic when you think about it, Mitch. Here's the relationship that is supposed to be the supreme human relationship, this yeah. husband and wife, which is really, a, in, in a way, a, a model or type of the relationship between Christ and his church. But I'd say marriage conflict. Mm-hmm. And um, or or conflict with children in the family because that's where we have the most intimate, frequent, close relationships day in and day out is within our families, and so I think for pastors to be teaching and preaching principles that really do relate to day to day life within the family, within the mm-hmm. marriage, uh, principles of of 
humility and confession and other awareness and, and ministering to and putting the other person you know, ahead of yourself and really making it very relevant to mm-hmm. marriage and family relationships, I, th- I think is a huge important thing. Yeah. Um, most pastors would tell you that 70, 80 percent of their counseling is marriage counseling. Yeah, sure, sure. And that affects the church. And uh, what I love from what you're saying is you're, you're describing a church that's concerned uh, for families and, and marriages. Uh, you know, I was looking for some, a story about conflict within the church, but you are talking about conflict within the yeah. church. Yeah. Um, so of, of all the, you know, the hard things, the harsh uh, mediation you've done, can you think of a story that just stands out as a, a miracle of restoration to you that yeah, um, there was a case some years ago where a couple came into their pastor for marriage counseling, and somehow, we, we still don't to this day know exactly how this evolved, but they, they were a young couple, they had two children, just had a, recently had a new baby, and somehow the decision to resolve the stress in the marriage was to place the baby up for adoption. Mm. And by the way, the pastor's son and daughter, uh, wife couldn't have kids, they make great parents, so why don't you adopt your baby to my son and his daughter? Mm. Mm. blatant, blatant uh, misuse of his fiduciary responsibility <laughs> yeah. to engineer this thing. Uh, so they, they listened to him. They, he was the pastor. He's God's representative. And they went ahead and they adopted their baby to the pastor's son. Well, a couple of weeks later, they thought, well, hold it. This, this really wasn't the thing to do. They went back. They said, you know, we've changed our mind. We want our baby back. And the pastor started talking about, you know, Christians keep their word even to their hurt. Wow. He gave the oath. Mm. Um, they appealed to the denomination. They refused to get involved. It got dragged out and dragged out. And they finally hired an, a, law, a lawyer. And one day after the statute ran where they could have reversed it, they filed their pleadings. It was one day too late to get their baby back. No legal recourse to get their baby back. So they filed a $200 million lawsuit against the pastor, the church, the denomination, the conference, all the way up the hierarchy. Wow. Everybody was involved in this thing because everybody had been part of it. Mm-hmm. And it dragged on for four years in a terribly expensive lawsuit. The, there was an attempt to kidnap the baby and high-speed ch- uh, chase across gravel roads in North oh. Dakota. It was, it was just, you can make a movie out of this. Yeah. We got called in after four years. And as a conciliation ministry, we, we got them to sign a mediation arbitration agreement where we would put together a panel and they would, we would resolve all the issues either through mediation or legally binding arbitration. Um, I was leading that panel and within five minutes, I realized I was in way over my head. Wow. This was so complex. There was um, eight represented parties in the room, 16 attorneys, far more attorneys than you ever want to have in one place. Mm. And it, it, the first couple of days were excruciating as all the stories came out and the anger and the bitterness and everything else. But on the fourth day, um, we just began to do what we call caucusing, where we met individually with each of the parties and just talked and prayed and really tried to help them understand their own contribution. And for four years, of course, they'd only been focusing on the other person, pointing the finger at the other person. And that, that's, just a, that's just a dead end story. Mm-hmm. But as we began to look at, you know, talk to them about their own contributions, what they'd done, the Holy Spirit began to work in some really, really yeah. profound ways. And when we reconvened, the birth father got up and said that he had just come under deep conviction and uh-huh. that he realized that his failure to be a godly husband four years earlier was the decisive factor in all this. He said, if I had been loving and caring for my wife and being a good father, this never would have happened. My sin Mm. 
is what started this entire thing. Oh my he goodness. Was so humbly spoken. And he said that he and his wife had talked about the situation and they had decided that they were going to withdraw the lawsuit. Part of what we talked to them about was this little child had now been raised by another couple for four yeah. years. And, and that's who she knew as her parents. Sure. Out of that setting now. And they were good people. They loved her dearly. And they just realized, in fact, the, the mother, birth mother realized, she finally admitted to me that the main thing driving her was not the well-being of the child. It was that she just didn't want to face that child someday and have her say, why didn't you keep fighting for me? Yeah. Mm. So they, they said they were going to, they were going to drop the lawsuit and then trust the denomination to do whatever they felt was right to restore them. They, they put a lot of time and money into this lawsuit and everything else. Said, if you think you've done something wrong and need to make it right, we'll believe that between you and God. Well, Every, I mean, there's this stunning thing in the room. The, the adoptive parents just started sobbing when they realized they were no longer under a threat of losing their child. But at that point, the pastor got up from his chair, walked around, got down on his knees in front of this couple, the birth parents, and began to confess his sin. And mm. he, he still sincerely believed at that point that he had not initiated the idea of the adoption. He said they had suggested it. Uh, they disagreed with that, but I was able to convince all sides that sometimes we tell our own story so often we forget what the truth mm -hmm. is. And I said, you know, that may be it. Um, but in any case, he said, regardless, whether I initiate or not, even if it was you, I was absolutely wrong to be a part of this thing. I never should have facilitated. I failed you as a pastor. I sinned against you greatly. I have sinned against you. Well, then the denomination president got up, walked across the room. His attorney, all the attorneys started getting nervous with all their clients mm -hmm. making these confessions at this mm -hmm. point. Attorneys don't like that. Yeah, yeah. And I had to get the attorneys to stay mm -hmm. in their seats. And the denomination pastor or pre president got up, same thing, confessed their failure mm -hmm. involved, everything else. Well, everybody by this point is just sobbing. The whole room, all the attorneys mm -hmm. and all the parties are crying. I had to call a break. I went out in the hallway, and there was one of the attorneys who was standing out there, one of the, the uh, defense attorneys for the denomination. He was not a Christian. He was pretty disillusioned with Christians, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, sure. And I went out there, and I, I could see he was trembling, and I came up beside him. There were tears streaming down his face. Mm. And I, I, I said, are you okay? And he, and he looked at me and says, what is going on in that room? There, there is a power in that mm. room. What is it? I said, that power oh. is Jesus Christ. Yeah, the gospel. Wow. And we, uh, we ended up with a, with a complete restoration of the parties, the birth parents, the adoptive parents worked out an arrangement to reintroduce the birth parents to mm -hmm. the child and develop a healthy relationship there. The denomination voluntarily ended up paying a lot of money to uh, restore, to cover the attorney's fees, to get this young couple back on track with his education. He dropped out of school. They got them a house, a full scholarship. But it was interesting. It's the most meaningful part of their restoration. During the process, the, the birth mother had shared how they, she'd even had to share or sell a family heirloom piano to pay mm. for the legal thing. And about a month after they moved into their new home, when her husband started school, a truck pulled up rolled out a brand new piano. <laughs> and there was a note from the denominational president say, we were not able to find the original piano. <laughs> so sorry. But we did look around to find one similar. I hope this mm. will be part of the healing process. My goodness. Personal touch. Where yeah. Enough, and he understood. He demonstrated authentic compassion. Yeah. 
that really was a huge part of the healing process. So that was one of the most dramatic. Yeah, that's, that's, that's dramatic. It's powerful. It, uh, it's, it shows the gospel at work. It, it's another way that what Jesus did on the cross is, is demonstrated. It's, a, it's, it's proof, you know, of the power of the gospel. Yeah. And, um, you know, here you have lawyers and attorneys trying to deal with this, and then you come along. And I, I suspect the four days or so that you spent time where you were, you know, did not see anything uh, happening until that breakthrough. You were talking about the gospel. You were talking oh, yeah. about oh, what yeah. Jesus did, and and uh, that that was that's the difference here. Um, and you you again, what I what I'm so drawn to. I'm reading your book, Peacemaker. Again, I've read it several years ago. Uh, you, you talk a lot about the emphasis being the gospel as as the motivator, as the reason, the basis for everything. Talk, talk to us a little bit more why that's so important. Well, the gospel is it's the it's the motive for reconciliation. It's the model for reconciliation. Mm. And it's mm. the method for reconciliation. I mean, the gospel represents everything that's essential. Everything with the letter M. It is right. A lot of acrostics. I mean, just think about something as simple as um, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Mm-hmm. The gospel tells us that no matter what role we play, even if we think we're the completely innocent party, which Jesus was a completely innocent party, and yet he was the initiator. He's the one that came. Our human tendency is, well, I know I did something wrong, but he's a lot worse than me, so yeah, he's yeah. not going to come to me. And the gospel shows us, no, both parties are mm-hmm. called by God to be the one going first. You look at the sacrifice that is represented in the gospel. The innocent one laid down his rights, mm. laid down his life literally, suffered the death for the other person. So peacemaking involves sacrifice. It involves initiative. You look at the forgiveness in the gospel. Jesus is up on the cross. The people who flogged and tortured and nailed him there are down at his feet mocking him. And yet, what is his heart attitude? Father, forgive them. Mm. They don't know what they're doing. And, you know, Mitch, I would have to say that every sin to some degree is a result of ignorance. We don't know. If we really understood the holiness of God and how the smallest offense, mm-hmm. the smallest white lie, the smallest bitter thought is an offense in the eyes of a holy God, we, we would realize every sin is a result of ignorance. Even when people have done something terrible to us, at the heart of it, they just don't understand what they're doing. Yeah. And yeah. So to have the, the heart of Christ, the compassion the mercy, the tenderness of Christ, even to people who've done a great wrong to us, that's huge because it, it, it flavors your whole response. You're reaching out not to get vengeance, not to exact a price, but to help this person see what they've done. And, and as not as a point of getting them to admit it to me and give me gratification, but to be restored to God. Yeah, yeah. God. and that so, happens best when someone sees their sin. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I love that verse in Ephesians, you know, he is our peace who has broken down the walls of hostility. Absolutely. And one of the ways I, I put it often when I preach is, you know, many of us have what I would call a two-door gospel. We see the gospel as a door. We come into a room at conversion. We're now part of the family of God, adopted, forgiven, restored to God. But then we tend to put the gospel in our pocket and we sort of live by the law, by all the shoulds, mm-hmm. thou shalt, mm-hmm. thou, thou shalt. And then at death, when we're on the other side of the room, when we're about to die, we're in the hospital room, we, we comfort our family by saying, don't worry, I'm going to go be with Jesus. Mm-hmm. So we have these two places, conversion and death, where the gospel is central. Mm-hmm. And in our day-to-day life of living out you know, our own repentance, sanctification, forgiveness, reconciliation, we try to do it by all the shoulds and by our own strength. When what we really need is every day the gospel. And yeah. I love that 
you know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his great book, um, Life Together, he, he just talks about the fact that what we need every day is people in the body of Christ to bring us the gospel. And let, let me just tell you a quick story. There was a friend of mine on a, a cruise ship where they had a very celebrity um, Christian speaker, and they were cruising around the Caribbean, having him speak and teach and do all the fun stuff on a cruise. And my friend Tom was on that ship, and he knew that this, this celebrity speaker, very respected in Christian circles, was going through a pretty difficult time in his own personal life. There were some difficulties in marriage that had been publicized. And um, so my friend was out on the deck one night walking around and he ran into this, this, the main speaker and they just started chatting. And my friend just felt a very strong impression from the Lord to share the gospel with this man. And internally he was saying, well, that's ridiculous. This man preaches the gospel every Sunday. He's got a radio program. He writes books on the gospels. You know, who am I to bring him the gospel? And yet yeah. he just felt the Lord just kept pressing and pressing and pressing. And so finally Tom just said, this is going to sound strange. But can I remind you of the gospel of Christ? So he just shared the gospel very simply. And this man started to cry. Mm. And he said, do you have any idea how long it has been since someone has brought me the gospel? Yeah, yeah. He was a dispenser of the gospel, but he hadn't received the gospel. Yeah, either. wow, wow. Yeah, this is a, kind of a re- re- renewed um, pattern for me in church. Uh, and I think maybe because I'm serving as an interim pastor right now, I've been reminded of the importance of this, but I, I, I love going to church uh, primarily to be reminded that I'm a forgiven sinner. Yeah, and absolutely. and then I, I go through my week. Um, the Lord reminds me of that. But again, on Sunday, I, and I, I get to worship the Savior uh, who made that possible, who made my forgiveness possible. And uh, I, you know, the, the only times I've seen a miracle happen of healing, restoration, reconciliation, whether it's between families or, or marriages, is, uh, is when people come to that point where they, they're overwhelmed with what Jesus did. They're overwhelmed with their sinfulness that's causing the problem. And in humility, they respond to Christ, but also in humility, they reach out to the other person. Yep. Um, and it's powerful. It's really powerful. That, that helps me understand a little bit more, uh, a little bit better your your statement, the golden result. And you're, you're kind of picking that up from the golden rule, which is uh, you know, obviously do unto others as you'd have them do to you. And when I first read that article about this, I, I thought, well, wait a minute. It sounds like you're conceding. You're uh, you're you're compromising. You're uh, letting the other person have have you know more than you want them to have. Explain what you what you mean by the golden. Well, it's really result. a description of just an interesting part of the way I think God has designed us. Is that mm-hmm. people will generally treat us the way we treat them. Mm-hmm. They generally, not always. But usually, uh, for example, if I'm in a conflict with somebody and I'm busy pointing out their faults the typical responses for them to point out my faults and it mm-hmm. just turns into mutual attack. Yeah. Yeah. But in most of the cases where one person begins to take responsibility for his contribution to the problem and admit it, I'm, I'm astonished how often the, the, the guard is down. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. You would think the other person, and I have seen in a few cases where the other person said, well, I'm glad you finally see how bad you are. <laughs> but in most cases, I would say 90% of the cases, the other, and this isn't like a lawsuit, you know, $100,000 lawsuit, mm-hmm. fighting for months, and then one person confesses, says, this is my fault. 
I'm astonished how often the other side will, well, now hold on a minute. It's not all your fault. I'm yeah, sure. yeah. <laughs> they come to your defense. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it really, I have seen people get into a quarrel now. No, it's more my fault. No, it's more yeah. my fault. So yeah. it's, it's, it's part of the way I think God has designed us. We tend to mirror mm. what other people are doing. So it's not a manipulative technique. I mean, it's no. a, it, it opens up the door for something genuine to happen in, in a conversation. Yeah, like, well, like any principle in the Bible, it can be turned into a manipulative technique. Certainly people can try to misuse it. And if you make an insincere confession just to elicit that from someone else, that, that, that's not going to really mm-hmm. be real genuine progress. So people can misuse it. I usually find that it's such a hard thing to do. Most people don't want to do it in the first place. So yeah. I don't see a lot of people misusing it when it does happen. It's usually a genuine recognition. God is calling me to confess my sin regardless of what the other person does about yeah. it. You just yeah. get some freedom to do the right thing regardless to the other person. That's where you break free. Yeah. And again, it's obedience to the gospel, isn't yep. it? I'm, I'm going to do this because God's asking me to do, and it's going to go against maybe what yep. I want to do, but it's yep. the right thing to do. Uh, let's end with this because uh, we, we know that the stories don't always end well and, you know, not everybody's reconciled. Oftentimes they're not. And uh, my, my last question to you here is how, and, and, you know, speak to people out there who have not seen, reconciliation happen? How can people still be set free or live in freedom when they've done everything they can, but they still live with the reality that there's brokenness, particularly in a church? Yeah, I, I would I would hold on to Romans twelve eighteen. It says, if it's possible, as far as it yeah. depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And Good. clearly implicit in that is it's not always going to be possible because mm-hmm. the other person may not respond. God only calls me to be responsible for my choices. I'm 100% responsible for my choices, not the other person. Mm-hmm. And anytime I'm mediating, I always try to impress upon the people that success in a, in a Christian biblical sense is not based on results. It's based on obedience. Have I faithfully followed what God is teaching me to the best of my ability? If so, I'm 100% successful regardless of what the other person does. And let me, let me close out with a story, Mitch. I was in a divorce case one time where a man had uh, been unfaithful to his wife, uh, had an affair, was divorcing her. They came to us for mediation. We attempted to reconcile the relationship, but he just wasn't interested. She was very bitter, understandably, hurt and upset by his unfaithfulness. And so for, for weeks and weeks, as we worked through the legal issues, she was just focused on how bad and awful he was. He, she wasn't willing to really look at her own contribution to how their marriage fell apart. And in the last meeting we had where they're going to sign the papers, I'd given her some scripture to read the night before because I knew this is the last time we get together. And, and the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Scripture, just got mm. through to her heart, softened her heart, came into the meeting, and she said, before we sign the papers, there's something I want to say. And she pulled out a piece of paper, and she had very thoughtfully, carefully written out a confession. And mm. it was one of the most heartfelt Mm. Now, this is the woman who's being divorced by her, her adulterous yeah. husband who's confessing wow. her sin. But it was real. There's a lot of things that she had done in the marriage that, had, that contributed to it. So the brokenness still happened, but she was free because she had dealt with her own What was interesting was he, you know, she goes through this beautiful confession. I'm just praying so. Mm. All the while she's talking, I'm silently praying, oh, Lord, touch his heart, mm. soften his heart, break his heart, that he might also see his sin that there might still be a turnaround here at this point because i've seen it yeah well, sure he was one of the guys that says well I'm, I'm glad you finally seen how hard you were to be married oh my goodness <laughs> it was 
just this, almost this brutal slap. Yeah. She was able to hold it together while we signed the papers and he left the room. As soon as the door closed, she just burst into tears. Mm. And my co-conciliator, another woman came over, just put her arm around and we just cried together for a while. Mm. This was a painful situation. But I will never forget what happened next. After a few minutes, she, she raised her face, tears on her, her cheeks. But it was like the sun breaking through the clouds on a rainy day. Her face was radiant. Mm. And what she said was, I'm free. Wow. I have confessed what I did. I believe mm. that God has forgiven me. I can go on with my life. What he does is now. She's not, she's not responsible for his sins. Right. He is. So she yeah. was the one that walked out of the room completely yeah. free. He was the one that walked out of the room still mm -hmm. in pains to his sin. Yeah. Well, that's people's success is obedience. And I, the thing I'll always close with, I say, when the Lord looks down at you, what he is saying is well done. Mm -hmm. Good, faithful servant. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, and thank you for the illustration because that, that helps for people to, again, we live in a real world that's, that's really broken and the, the, the stories of brokenness probably outweigh the stories where there's been healing, sadly, but yeah. that's, that's the world that we live in. Uh, Ken, this has been powerful. Uh, your, your ministry has been uh, used a lot by the Lord Jesus. And I, again, I'm sure others have done this. I want to thank you for uh, your service to the church, your commitment to this. And uh, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to, to talk to us. And I, I do believe this will be an encouragement to, uh, to a lot of people. And uh, continue to enjoy what you're doing there in Montana. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mitch. Great to be with you. Lord bless you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, there you have it. I want to thank you again for listening to this episode of Before You Quit podcast. If you have any comments or questions about anything that we've talked about today on Before You Quit or on any other episodes, you can email me at mitch at beforeyouquit.us. So until next week, stay encouraged and be courageous because serving Jesus is worth all that hard stuff that comes with it. And remember what we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, 57 through 58. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So until next time, stay encouraged. <music>